This is the Capital Literature Podcast, bringing you investment letters in audio. The Capital Literature Podcast is a SEBITS capital service for the investment community. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All rights belong to the respective owners. Epic Investment Partners, Third Quarter, 2021. October 2021. Quarterly Newsletter. Spotlight, Managing a Portfolio Through a Pandemic. A Conversation with David Sino, CFA, Kaya, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager and Senior Research Analyst. Question. Thinking back to March 2020, did you feel pressure to make portfolio decisions because of the looming pandemic? Answer. In general, Epic is a long-term investor, and we make our investment decisions based on the long-term fundamentals of the companies in which we invest, not short-term market events. The quality capital reinvestment strategies in particular are all about investing in companies with sustainable competitive advantages that earn high returns on their invested capital. Those principles are timeless, through bull and bear markets. If we have done a good job identifying companies with those sustainable moats, then what happens in the market won't necessarily cause us to react. When markets plummeted in February and March of 2020, we asked ourselves a question, how much does the pandemic structurally change the competitive advantages we think we've identified through our fundamental research process? The answer, far more often than not, was that nothing had changed. And I don't say that lightly, because obviously the pandemic has caused many changes. But, by and large, the moats around the companies we own were not breached by the pandemic. In some cases, the pandemic even made those competitive advantages clearer. So, we did not think it made sense to be doing a lot of trading based on emotional reactions to the news flow. Question. Where did you take action, and why? Answer. While we focus on companies and not sectors, it was clear that the pandemic might change the long-term dynamics for certain sectors more than others. The travel industry was one area where you could really make a case that things had changed on a longer-term basis, particularly around business travel. Though the whole sector might be impacted, we had to evaluate what the impact would be on the individual companies within. It is probably useful here to contrast our positions on Southwest Airlines and Alaska Air, both of which we owned going into the pandemic. They were earning similar rates of return on capital, and both incorporated return on capital metrics into management compensation but they had different business models. Southwest has built a unique footprint. Using secondary airports that are not served by the network carriers. It offers good value for your money, and it flies mainly leisure travelers. Alaska had its own unique footprint, based. In Seattle and serving a lot of business travelers on the West Coast going to and from the tech centers in Seattle and Silicon Valley. Our view is that Alaska's business would be much slower to rebound and might never fully recover. On top of that, Southwest went into the pandemic with no long-term debt, whereas Alaska still had some debt from its purchase of Virgin America. So Southwest was able to use its strong balance sheet to buy up slots at some airports where it had previously not been present, like O'Hare. We concluded that Southwest was actually going to emerge from the pandemic stronger than before, whereas Alaska was likely to be weaker. We sold Alaska and held on to Southwest. Question. Let's move ahead in time to late last year, when it became clear that effective vaccines had been developed. Did you ever think about trying to play the reopening trade? Answer. Well, since we had never really shifted to a closed portfolio, 
there wasn't really a need for us to switch back to a reopening stance. We were just talking about travel, we had held on to many of our travel names like Booking.com and Amadeus, which is the preeminent IT provider for airlines and hotels. We felt that both companies had unique attributes and wide moats that would enable them to continue to earn high. Returns on invested capital as the pandemic eased. And now that travel is in fact returning, we can see that both companies have maintained their strong positions within their markets. I should also mention that the whole idea of there being a kind of binary open or closed position for the economy is overly simplistic. As we have all seen, the reopening has been a fluid, constantly evolving situation, as COVID waxes and wanes in various places at various times. It's not like flipping a switch and suddenly everything is back to normal. Question. Did the pandemic have any impact on what kinds of stocks were in your investable universe over the last 18 months? Answer. The quality capital reinvestment strategies use a screen to narrow the overall universe. The screen seeks companies that meet the desired ROIC, growth and profitability characteristics. Over the last 18 months, we did see a difference in the companies passing the screen. I think the best examples are a lot of the mining stocks and the shipping stocks, or the companies that make the shipping containers. I like to say that these companies migrate through our screen once every decade or so. Because inevitably something happens, in this case the pandemic, which created a lot of distortions in demand and disruptions in the global supply chain, and you get a burst of inflation in certain commodity prices or a spike in shipping rates because of a temporary imbalance in shipping supply and demand. This is not what we're trying to capture with the Capri strategies. There was a short-term trade opportunity there, but we don't think this is a permanent situation, and we don't think anyone can time the beginning and ends of these spikes. Like I said earlier, this is all about trying to distinguish between what is temporary and what is permanent, and it is hard for us to see how most of these companies have any way to really differentiate themselves from their competitors with any kind of long-term sustainable advantage. Question. What would you say are the lessons we learned from the pandemic that we can apply in the future? Answer. I certainly hope that, with regard to pandemics, this will be a one-and-done thing for me. But while we might not have another pandemic in my career, we will have bear markets and sharp drawdowns. And the quality companies are the ones that will persevere because of their competitive advantages, because of their balance sheets, because of their manager's skill in allocating capital. We believe those companies will win, those companies will outperform over time. And, in spite of short-term noise and short-term trading opportunities, we believe those principles will prevail. And that's the basis for our strategy. David is a portfolio manager and senior equity research analyst. Prior to joining Epic in 2007, he was a research analyst with Gabelli & Company where he was responsible for covering the financial services sector, overseeing the automotive sector research team and making buy-slash-sell recommendations for the Gabelli Mutual Funds. Before joining Gabelli & Company, David was an assistant research director for Barron's Business and Financial Weekly. David holds a BA from Hofstra University and an MBA from Baruch College. Quarterly Investment Update, China's Common Prosperity Regime, What Does It Mean for Investors? William W. Priest, CFA, Executive Chairman, Co-CIO and Portfolio Manager Kevin Hebner, PhD, Managing Director, Global Investment Strategist. This summer China launched a new policy regime, which escalates government steerage of the economy and features two critical initiatives. First, Beijing has, finally, 
taken action to tame the country's real estate obsession and speculative excesses. Second, the summer blizzard of regulatory actions has evoked crackdowns on a wide range of sectors, including online consumer platforms, fintech, gaming, private education, and many more. We believe these policies mark a historic turn, with the pendulum swinging ever further in favor of the state. Housing is for living, not for speculation. President Tsai The motivation for Beijing's crackdown on real estate couldn't be clearer, it represents 70% plus of household assets, and real estate-related activities account for a staggering 25% of Chinese GDP. Moreover, 87% of new home buyers already have at least one dwelling. Price-to-income ratios in major cities are the world's highest, three times NYC's, and the urban housing vacancy rate is 21%. These eye-popping statistics have finally compelled policymakers to address the economy's over-reliance on debt-fueled property investment to fabricate growth. The government now suddenly seems to be displaying something near panic about falling birth rates. Very not in UCSD. But why now? Concerns about excessive leverage and speculation are not new. Beijing has been worried since at least 2007, and the Fed first expressed alarm in 2004. What is different is that the workforce is now shrinking. The labor force grew by over 20% between 1990 and 2017, but since then has shrunk by 17 mn. Correspondingly, housing demand peaked at 20.2 mn units in 2017 and is forecast to decline to 12.8 mn units in 2030, representing a bubble-popping 37% decrease. This demographic time bomb is terrible for Chinese real estate that, like all Ponzi schemes, requires fresh patsies to keep from imploding. Despite the extreme imbalances, we do not expect a layman-type financial crisis as China's closed capital account and huge current account surplus provide Beijing with sufficient capacity to prevent contagion and ensure households are protected. Further, since 2008 policymakers everywhere have learned to avoid layman moments, so a broad-based credit crunch seems unlikely. Moreover, given how exposed and vulnerable households are, the government has every incentive to avoid a hard landing. The best evidence that the market believes in such an implicit promise, a Beijing put if you will, is the lack of any sell-off in investment-grade spreads. Chinese high spreads have blown out to all-time highs, four-plus standard deviations above normal, while IG spreads remain narrow, and tighter than their 10Y mean. This shows that investors are not worried about contagion from the real estate sector affecting markets more broadly. Thus overinvestment in the real estate market and in all kinds of infrastructure projects artificially inflated GDP growth in the past years. Many of these projects are of little economic use, so the debt that is associated with them is unsustainable. The party leadership knows this, genuine growth is probably 2-3%, not more. In other words, there is an awful lot of fictional growth. Michael Pettis, Peking University Even without a financial crisis, a successful deleveraging and rebalancing necessarily implies lower overall growth over the medium term. Moreover, such transitions are fiendishly difficult and always involve collateral damage, meaning we're likely to experience casualties in other sectors. Bottom line, China's structural imbalances are enormous by any standard, so expect more shocks and volatility spikes over coming quarters. The Attack on Tech, AU Revoir de Laissez-Faire Regarding regulatory tightening, the clampdown on internet companies has been especially aggressive, with China shedding what was once a relatively laissez-faire approach to the sector. 
Policy analysts believe many of Beijing's actions were long overdue and echo programs enacted by their counterparts in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. This includes ramping up antitrust scrutiny, investigating anti-competitive behavior, for example, M&A, exclusive deals, and litigating personal data violations. Beijing has taken matters further though, with online consumer platforms being forced to, on a rather ad hoc basis, raise wages, improve treatment of gig workers and make donations to charitable causes. One negative consequence for investors is that the new policy framework will limit the upside potential for Chinese companies, especially in tech. Firms that become too successful and powerful, and whose activities don't fully align with Beijing's priorities, will find themselves in the crosshairs. The phrase in Japan is, the nail that sticks out will get hammered down, incumbent tech giants, such as Alibaba and Tencent, will still be around but will be less overweening. In a nutshell, 10 baggers will not be allowed in the new China. This is especially problematic given the winner-takes-most nature of the digital economy. For example, 40% of the SPX's rise since 2015 is accounted for by just six superstar firms. Given that we expect digital platforms to represent the majority of market capitalization by 2025, this suggests the overall Chinese index is doomed to continued underperformance. Common prosperity, new policy framework or just a catchy populist slogan? Both of this year's critical policy developments are associated with the common prosperity slogan that President Tsai began actively promoting in August. This catchphrase is intentionally vague, but targets rising income inequality, excessive speculation and a host of antisocial activities, including gaming, frequently referred to as spiritual opium. For private enterprises, the grand steerage means greater emphasis on social responsibilities, to workers and the state, with the status of founders and shareholders taken down a notch. With this new framework, Beijing is moving with an intensity not seen in decades. President Tsai wants the state to more actively steer flows of capital, set tighter parameters for entrepreneurs, and exercise even more control over the economy. And the timing is deliberate, coming ahead of the 19th Party Congress slated for October 2022, which will feature the next five-year plan and the quinquennial personnel changes, President Tsai hopes to keep his job. This made the summer of 2021 an opportune time to launch a catchy populist slogan and enact policies focused on housing, the largest driver of inequality, private education, to which the rich have much better access, and humbling tech billionaires, always makes for great headlines. Regulatory uncertainty, will IT quash China's entrepreneurial energy? One of the biggest risks is that the common prosperity regime suppresses the entrepreneurial spirit that has emphatically powered China's boom. It is certainly the case that there has been a big hit to entrepreneurial confidence, and the fast-changing regulatory environment is making long-term planning more difficult. Moreover, it is widely believed the fluid, opaque and unpredictable regulatory crackdown will continue and not end anytime soon. Quote, President Tsai, sees all forms of speculative investment, particularly in property, as belonging to the fictitious economy which crowds out investment in the real economy of manufacturing, technology and infrastructure, sectors that will seal China's global economic dominance. End of quote. From Kevin Rudd, President of Asia Society and former Prime Minister, Australia. What sectors are favored? Surpassing America and achieving tech independence. Beijing favors companies that create tangible advances in deep tech that will help China surpass America and shield against the risk of technology decoupling. 
President Xi has frequently championed AI cloud computing and quantum computing, but also wants to create a more hardware-focused tech sector with AVs, sensors and homemade cutting-edge semiconductors. Other broad priorities include high-end manufacturing to ensure China's competitiveness, as well as power equipment and clean energy. On the other hand, Beijing is actively discouraging businesses focused on speculative activity, including gambling, that increase income inequality, private education, and are deemed frivolous, such as social media, video games and other spiritual opium. Regardless, when launching a new company, entrepreneurs and VC investors must increasingly ask, how does this solve China's problems? Is China investable? To understand what the new regulatory environment means for investors, we first provide some historical context. Despite its booming economy, the overall Chinese market has exhibited terrible performance. Since 2010, MXCN has underperformed MXIS by 63% with IT being the only sector that did better than the US index. The next two best sectors were healthcare and consumer staples, while the worst were industrials and finance. The CSI 300 performed similarly against the SPX, with its two best sectors being consumer staples and healthcare, while its worst also included industrials and finance, figure 1. The results over the last decade clearly are not encouraging. However, some investors make a more tactical argument, emphasizing mean reversion and suggesting the recent sell-off represents a good entry point. Although that might be true for some sectors and companies, it is not the case for the overall market. While Chinese indices almost always trade at a lower multiple than their U.S. counterparts, the discount today is exactly at the 10Y mean, figure 2. That is, market weakness has simply reflected weaker relative earnings growth. Bottom line, there is neither a tactical nor a valuation argument for the overall Chinese indices. Figure 1. Figure 1 shows the Shanghai Qi 300 sectors relative to SPX value from 2010 to 2022. Since 2010 the Qi 300 underperformed by an astonishing 63% with only one sector, consumer staples, outperforming the SPX. End of figure 1. Figure 2 figure 2 shows that despite the recent sell-off, Chinese indices appear fairly valued relative to their U.S. counterparts from 2010 to 2022. End of figure 2. The case against Chinese equities can then be summarized as, an elevated level of regulatory uncertainty, terrible relative performance since 2010, and yet the broad indices are still trading at their historical multiple, reflecting weak relative earnings growth. Additionally, common prosperity is likely to limit the upside for many successful tech companies, which is especially problematic for the digital economy, where a small number of firms account for an oversized share of market gains. Finally, the macro picture is likely to remain challenging for an extended period as the property sector delivers. All this suggests the Chinese indices are likely to continue underperforming. However, it doesn't mean the asset class is uninvestable. There are certainly some companies that will thrive in the new regulatory environment. To identify such opportunities, Epic has always favored companies with effective capital allocation policies, including a demonstrated ability to deliver a ROIC above their WAC. We also look for companies with a record of generating FCF on a sustainable basis. Such companies are the most probable winners, and the above analysis suggests they are most likely to be found in sectors like healthcare, tech and consumer staples, while there may be relatively few candidates in finance and industrials.